All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Difficult Conversations by Supply the Why. We got a smoker for you tonight. We're here with none other than Kwame Christian Esquire. So Kwame is also the director of the American Negotiation Institute, which is a fantastic uh, organization that has great podcasts about negotiation, but not just about the negotiation process itself, all the different aspects of it and how it can be effective for your organization. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and get Kwame on. Hey, Dean. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. How are you, brother? Doing well, doing well. All right. Well, we're excited to have you. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time away from your family. I know you got young ones and it's right about like tubby time and, and all that right now. So yeah. I know it's tough. No, I mean, listen, you gave me a good excuse to uh, to step aside and uh, Whitney is Whitney's going to hold this one against me, but I'm enjoying the, the freedom right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're going to take full advantage of that and we're going we're gonna to try to touch as many different subjects as possible tonight. Um, I know it's going to be tough to squeeze it all in an hour, but we're going to do our best. So one of the things that I'd wanted to kick off with you was about, tell us about some of your work and what are some of the special projects that you're involved in right now? Yeah, so it's um, it's exciting times at the American Negotiation Institute. So we do negotiation and conflict resolution trainings, but we also do a little bit of DEI work um, focusing on how to have difficult conversations about race. And I think um, for a lot of people, it might seem like we are going in completely separate directions. But when you think about our mission, it makes sense. And so for us, we believe that the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. And whether it's business or personal, um, you think about the most impactful moments of your life, there's probably a difficult conversation somewhere in the vicinity of that moment. So for us, we just want to make those difficult conversations easier by empowering people with the skills to have the difficult conversations effectively. Well put. So that goes to how you and I met. You and I kind of met in a, in a strange way, uh, you know, with the pandemic and everything. More and more people are developing relationships virtually. So you and I met and we ended up having a long conversation. I think I, uh, I, I want to say that we met when I applied to be on your podcast. And then you, you had your, we, you, you interview your, your, your potential people. You don't just say, Hey, apply and you're, you're guaranteed a spot. You have to interview for that, for that spot. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, the, it was scheduled for 15 minutes and it went for like 45, <laughs> <laughs> which is a, which is a pretty good sign. And yet, and and since then we've we've kept in contact, and uh, and from there we met down at the the National Podcast Movement Convention. Yeah, in, so it, in Nashville, great because we never uh, it's especially like you said with the pandemic, we we make so many relationships that are completely virtual. So it was good to actually see you as a person, as a human being. Uh, it's it's rare, and I really appreciated that. Yeah, same here, because I was starting to think you were just head and shoulders and nothing more, you know, that because that's all I had I had seen of you up until that point. Yeah. So man. so let's get let's get into it. DEI in the workplace. Why is that so important to you? And why is that something that is is can bring every organization to the next level? Yeah, well, the reality is that um, when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's going to be a critical part of every single workplace. And um, there are a lot of people who might kind of scoff at that and not think it's important but the reality is that we're going to be made up of different people different personalities different backgrounds 
And each of those people wants to feel as though they belong in the workplace. And if they don't feel as though they belong, then they're not going to be as effective as they can be. And then they're not going to stay. And it turns into retention issues, right? And so companies benefit from diversity of thought. If everybody's coming from the same perspective, then we're not able to get um, the richness of discussion that's necessary to solve effective problems. And so that's why I really like it because it matters. It's just simply put, it matters. And really, I think a lot of times we people miss the fact that you can learn all the lingo and try to follow all the complex rules that seem to be changing all the time and try to be politically correct or whatever. But really what it comes down to is two things. It's just connection and communication. That's really it. And if we can help people to give them those skills so they can have these difficult conversations at a higher level, um, then that's going to take their DEI um, uh, abilities to the next level too. See, I couldn't agree more with you. A lot of what I talk about, again, when I do my DEI trainings, is you know when you usually talk about diversity and inclusion, diversity to most people means, all right, well, I need a different, a bunch of different people that look differently, or pray differently, or love differently. That's what a lot of people think that diversity is. But you mentioned something that I think is great when you talk about the diversity of of the mind, diversity of thought processes in a business. I know that for what I do in law enforcement, for example, right. You need people that see problems and solutions differently. If not, then you are a very predictable and very easily manipulated organization. So that, that's something I, that I think is, is overlooked way, way too often. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I even think about it in, on my in my company with my staff. Um, I remember when I was uh, looking for trainers and I was vetting different trainers and looking at their videos and things like that. And there were some where I was like, yeah, they clearly know their stuff and they're very effective, but they don't have like the, my style. They didn't do it mu- like the way that I would typically do it. And uh, my sales guy, Shane, head of sales and partnerships at, a- at A&I, he said, well, respectfully, Kwame, does everybody need to do it the same way that you do it? And that's an example of a bias, affinity bias. It's you look, you look at things in yourself and you say, hey, this is good. And other people should have those things too. So you start to develop these preferences toward people who have that, that same type of um, mentality, background, whatever it happens to be. And so it biases in everybody, right? And so the thing is, if I were to continue to hire people that are just like me, we're a one-dimensional team. And then when it comes to business strategy, listen, if, if it were just a bunch of Kwamis on the team, it would be us moving really, really, really fast into walls and off cliffs. We, we, don't, <laughs> we don't need that, right? We don't need more of me. We need diversity of thought to fill in my gaps because nobody's perfect. And so we all have our holes. We need to learn how to work together, collaborate, and respect each other's opinions and perspectives so we can all benefit from the richness that diversity has to offer. That's a fantastic way of looking at it. To that point, we do have a question in the chat. So Heidi wants to know, what is the best approach for an employee to talk about DE&I training with their employer? That is a great question. And so the first thing is, when it comes to these difficult conversations, um, I want to start with this, and it's uh, we'll just borrow from Nike, just do it, right? Because a lot of times we take the, we, we really um, like to live in the world of strategy because it's safe, but we have to at some point shift into execution, right? So um, for the people who are saying, how do I have this conversation? Just know it has to happen. So what I suggest that you do is for yourself, put a shot clock on it. I'm going to have this conversation within the next seven days, 
14 days, whatever. And just know step one is it has to happen within this time window. That's how you start to go. That's the first thing. The next thing is I would start to think about the public declarations that companies have made to diversity, equity, and inclusion. That was really in vogue, especially last year. Everybody was talking about how much they love diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well, great. <laughs> cool. So let's start with that. And so <laughs> I would start by saying, hey, this is this is what we said on the website. What are we doing to bring this into fruition? What are we doing to, to bring this to life? And so this is a classic negotiation principle called consistency. Shout out to Dr. Robert Cialdini, um, where people want to be seen as consistent. That's how you are, become trustworthy. Consistency in word and deed. Okay. So you said this. I'm going to not, I'm not going to use my words. I'm not going to use my own persuasive lens on this. I'm going to remind you of what you said and then help you to recognize that there's a discrepancy between what you said and what you have and have not done. And so I'm going to use this conversation to help you to find some different avenues uh, to align uh, those two those two things. So I see what you did there. So basically what you do is you take a mirror and you hold it up and you say, look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You're not doing what you said you were going to do. I'm holding your feet to the fire. I want you to take a hard look at yourself. And I want you to think about how you're actually going about the mission that you said was so important to you. Exactly. Having said that, a lot of companies, a lot of organizations think that diversity, equity, and inclusion training is is, is a one stop is a one thing one stop shop. You can have one training, one one day training, and then we're diverse. What do you say to, to organizations that think that uh, that you can just do kind of like a, a walk off home run style of training? Well, I don't think any organizations think they can. <laughs> they, they lie to themselves and believe and, and they're checking boxes. Right. But when you ask yourself, what have I gotten? Like, what have I mastered in just one session? I mean, what think about anything over the course of your lifetime? Like, what have you mastered in just one session? It's 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 that's a problem. That's problematic thinking. So it needs you need to be constantly engaged in this. And so I'm not saying it needs to be weekly sessions or something like that, but you have to have a plan. And that's why I talk to people about um, the difference between a program uh, like like an event and a program. Right. And so if I'm thinking about a workout, if I say, hey, I want to get in better shape, I'm not going to just say, all right. So my plan for 2021, I'm going to get in better shape. And this is the workout. And this is the day I'm going to do it. September 19th. I did my workout <laughs> for the year. Right. That's preposterous. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Right. I need to have a workout plan. So what am I going to do consistently over the course of time to reach my objective? And so what I ask people when we're when we're doing trainings, I we start with the goal. So begin with the end in mind. So what is it that you hope to accomplish? What problems are you seeing? What do you want it to, what do you want to accomplish? Okay. And so in order for us to do this, it, it sounds as though you're not looking for a checked box solution. It doesn't look like you're a box checking organization. Of course, they're going to say, yeah, we're not trying to check boxes. Okay. Well, great. In order to make sure that this program has the stickiness that you want, um, it's going to take multiple sessions. Just doing it one time won't, won't get it done. I love that. So what you're doing is you're really essentially you're doing an upfront contract. You're essentially getting them to admit that, hey, this is not a one-stop shop. This is something where you're going to have to revisit this several times over. Because let's face it, when it comes to bias and when it comes to any kind of isms, those are the ultimate shapeshifters, aren't they? You know, like they manifest themselves one way, and then over time, they find a different way to manifest themselves. So in order to stay current and to address all the different ways that they're popping up, 
it requires multiple trainings in multiple sessions, right? 100%. All right. So with that in mind, I want to go back to Nashville. So you and I were in a session. We were in a session. I believe it was something uh, had to do with some of the some of the black podcast groups, right? Some of the some of the black podcasting groups sessions that we're in. Yep. And we were in one particular session, and they talked about have you ever felt, uh, I believe, was unapologetically black? Is it was that the term that was used? Yeah, they wanted to be able to be unapologetically black. That I think that was the discussion. Yeah. All right. So at which point? Me being me, I just I just have a, a even at forty five years old, I have a difficult time keeping my mouth shut when something kind of gives me a uh huh moment. And I I believe I remember I texted you. I said, "Do you identify with this? Has it ever been a time where you felt um, that you couldn't be unapologetically black in in your day to day, in your employment, in your as an entrepreneur, as a podcaster?" Yeah, well, certainly not as a podcaster. It's I mean, it's my show. <laughs> So I'm going to do what I want on, on negotiate anything. That's, that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is, I think um, I never it, it wasn't something that I identified with. I, it wasn't a struggle that I, I had. And I think because of my background, it helps to explain why that hasn't been a struggle for me. And so for me, I'm a first generation Caribbean American. I grew up in Tiffin, Ohio, which is a small midwestern town um vast majority white and um and so i had a really strong caribbean accent really strong and so i mean honestly this is me code switching this is my business american accent right if i talk to my parents or i have one too many drink then you hear <laughs> a caribbean kwame come out um and so i think uh for me growing up i was constantly different from other people so I had to learn how to speak different cultural languages, right? Come home, speak a different language, then co go to go to school, go to church or whatever, speak another language. Now, when I came to the university, Ohio State, um, you know, for me, it was a mecca of diversity <laughs> because there were just so many different people. And then I had another um, identity crisis, too, because I said, OK, well, now, hey, I'm here and nobody knows me. Um, I am Caribbean American. There aren't very many of those here. All right. The white people here don't know me. And I have not had any, any consistent interactions with African-Americans. Think about that. I'm 18 years old, 17 years old, coming to college. And this is my first time consistently interacting with African-Americans. So for the first year, uh, year or two of college, I had to learn how to cult, like code switch to African-American culture. And so I have a lot of conversations with my black friends who might say something like the, the, the conversations that we were having at uh, Nashville, um, being unapologetic, unapologetically black and not wanting to code switch ever and how that's a concession and things like that. And I, I say to them, you realize I'm code switching for you. <laughs> <laughs> right now this is not how i typically talk but i'm doing this for you right and it's just like anybody does it to a certain extent if you're a young person you code switch when you talk to your friends versus your parents when you're in school you just code switch when you're talking to your your professor versus your your friend your friends in class and at work you code switch when you're talking to your boss versus your colleagues versus the people who report to you we're all switching to a certain extent now the question is whether or not we're maintaining our sense of authentic self Right. No matter who I am in which situation, whether it's Kwame, the lawyer, Kwame, the husband, Kwame, the father, right, Kwame, the uh, the podcaster, there are going to be some common commonalities, a, a core of who I am like that core cannot shift my values, my identity that cannot shift. But then the way that I express myself, the jargon that I use, my tone, my approach like that 
that can change. So you can code switch and change and and um, uh, align with people that are around you in the periphery. The core should always stay the same, though. So with that said, is it possible to be successful in all the different aspects of life that you are without code switching? No. So here's here's an example. Here's an example, right? So I know what it takes to be an effective lawyer. Um, I know how to persuade as a lawyer really well. And then sometimes I'll have a difficult conversation with Whitney and I would, um, yeah, I would try to get my point across. And then sometimes she would actually say, I feel like I'm talking to Kwame the lawyer, not Kwame the husband. That was an inability to code switch. And it, and it had horrible consequences. <laughs> you know, you have to, you have to read the room. You have to read the room. I think I, we, t- we talk about diversity in terms of like culture and people and everything, but there's diversity within ourselves too. Right, there are different versions of ourselves that will bring that will come to the fore at the right time, and so me, the parent of a six-year-old, will talk and and express himself very differently when I'm talking to my six-year-old than you know me hanging out with my boys going on a boys trip. Right, same Kwame, but we it it will sound very very different, but still being completely authentic and true to who I am. And that just goes back to what we were talking about back in Nashville where to me the ability to do that and to do that with confidence is being unapologetically black absolutely i think they're they've been my my background is psychology so my undergrad degree is in psychology um and one of the things that they found is that the um you in in every culture there's going to be a dominant group and there's going to be a subordinate group and so the dominant in terms of numbers so that's why you know minorities like that's where the term actually comes from it's just a a numbers game right um and so and then also position and status prestige and wealth those type of things and so for instance what they found is that the the subordinate groups so let's say the minorities just using the blanket term um or bipoc um however you want to identify people of color whatever they tend to know more about the majority group than the majority group knows about the minority group because the minority groups have to understand the the culture in order to sur- survive and navigate effectively. But the majority group, they can survive and be successful without knowing very much about the minority groups, right? And so going back to what you just said yeah. about how your your ability to to be smooth and and read the room and adjust as necessary is a version of being unapologetic unapologetically black i agree um because we've always had to know more about the majority group in order to be successful in whatever it is that we do so for those of you that are just just tuning in i'm here with kwame christian and he just dropped a 300 level course gem on you all that that was not for freshmen right there that is for people that that are that really want to understand what it's like for those of us that have had that have grown up in situations where we are in the minority particularly very much so in the minority and you're 100 right you you do have to learn a ton about the people that are in the minority in whatever area you're in if you if you are growing up like i did like you did in a mostly uh white area you had to be very conscious and you had to learn a lot about the the people that were in your in your in your environment so in my case you know when i grew up there was uh there was a a very heavy heavy jewish population it was a heavy portuguese population and there was very heavy irish population so i was well versed in a lot of those um different ethnicities in in some of the different customs and it it was comfortable because it's Mm -hmm. what it's what i knew and i had and even to this day i still talk about there's a friend i i have her, her name's bobby and her and I reconnected on on uh, social media, and I talked to her, and I said, "Hey, 
Remember those potato lockies your mother used to make, which is very, it's a very popular Jewish food, potato lockies, they're potato pancakes, but a million times better. And that's mm -hmm. the very first thing I thought of. And I got introduced to that in third grade when Bobby's mother and some of the other Jewish mothers would come up around the holidays and they would talk to the students about some of the, the Jewish customs and the holidays. And the most fun part for me was they would cook mm -hmm. and they'd, they'd make all this wonderful food. And I just remember the potato lockies. But that's a prime example of me having a great understanding of these customs where they may or may not have had such a great understanding of my customs. I can tell you another, another quick story. One of the most lonely days in elementary school for me was when we talk about slavery. Mm. So we would talk about slavery and, and I was the only black kid in grades um, four, five, and six. So I was in sixth grade and I, it was just me. And then midway through the year, we got another kid who moved into town. And then a third kid moved in from Chicago. And I, I was like, I mean, so we tripled our population, you know, just like that. And I, we would talk about slavery in school because that's basically all that you talked about for black history back then. And I remember all the kids turning around and looking back at me. And I remember how uncomfortable that felt and how awful that felt. And I was just thinking, I was like, man, there's got, there's got to be more to black history than this. Like, it's just this morbid topic it didn't talk about all the great things that that, that that's that african americans black folks had done over the years it didn't talk about what great things people were doing currently and uh i don't know i just, I just want to know what your thoughts were on that yeah i mean it was the same it was the same and, and the thing is when you are constantly looking at yourself through the lens of oppression and uh you know bad times it's hard to have a very strong and confident sense of self right because you you go think about your class right you uh, all the the white people that you hear about in history it's like they're doing great things <laughs> for the most part building up civilizations inventing things and everything oh we have to talk about black people let's talk about the time they were enslaved uh I, it was it was hard for me too like that was that was really tough and and I, actually dean you brought up a really good point with the food reference too because i i like that because it's something that people can get down with um because every culture is is for the most part is proud of their food and uh it's a big part of who they are a big staple and so let's just use that as an example of code switching subtly right and so for instance last week i was in a wedding a nigerian wedding for some odd reason a disproportionate amount of my friends are nigerian and so uh when my when people see me hanging out with the nigerians they assume that i'm nigerian too because they hear me use Nigerian slang, um, you know, do and Nigerian impressions. Because I hear my friends do it, I talk to their parents all the time. I can, I can do that, right? Um, so for me, I'm not talking about jerk chicken, um, curried goat, and um, roti and things like that. Um, that's Caribbean, right? They don't have that reference. But I'll talk about agusi soup. I'll talk about stew. I'll talk to my uh, my Ghanaian friends and say, hey, who has the best? Uh, the best uh, jollof rice is it going to be the the Ghanaians or the Nigerians and then they have their little back and forth right and so that's an example of code switching I'm not going to talk about things <laughs> like cultural references from my culture if people in front of me are not from my culture they'd be that that's very cool Kwame but I don't understand what you're talking about with jerk chicken <laughs> <laughs> I love that I love that reference and again that's that's you're right that's one of those things and, and here we are i mean third grade i mean we're talking i mean we're approaching 40 years later and here i am that's still fresh in my head yeah. um just, just like it was yesterday and that's a perfect example of the code switching that you were talking about exactly so from there 
Another thing I wanted to talk to you about, fear of excellence. Do you find, I, I see you, you're doing the slow nod. Do you find that a lot of folks have a fear of excellence? Because it is scary when you, you know, like most people are comfortable being in the middle somewhere, mm-hmm. like just being good enough. But that step towards excellence and putting yourself out there, how do you feel about the fear of excellence? Is it a real thing? And do you think it's 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 rampant? Yes and yes. So I um, was playing, uh, tennis was my main sport growing up. And I remember one time I was reading this book where they said, hey, pretend you're starting off every match like you're down 3-0, like you're already losing. Because what they found is that people start, start to fight harder when they're behind. And once you start to lose, then it's like the, uh, their pressure is off of you. People are, who are watching don't assume you're going to win because you're already losing. Then people loosen up and then they start to come back. That's why they say one of the signs of a champion is how you can play with a lead in any sport. Can you have that lead and maintain that lead? Because that has, is a different level of mental fortitude, right? And so going, taking that same um, analogy and bring it to, bringing it to like real life outside of the sports world, um, there's a lot of pressure when it comes to stepping up and, and being, being the guy or being the, the, the woman or who, however you identify, being that person and being successful. Because when people don't assume that you're going to succeed, it's, it's really easy to work with that chip on the shoulder. You don't have that same kind of pressure. But then when it's time to, you can see that victory, a lot of times people go into self-sabotage mode and they'll do it in different ways. They won't recognize they'll do it because everyone does it differently. And so whatever it is, it is almost it's really designed to keep you from hitting that next level. And I think it takes a lot of self-awareness to come to that realization, Um, realization that you're going to have gaps in your psyche that you can't fully you might be able to, you know, it's there on an intellectual level, but on a like a subconscious level, you can't really stop its impacts. That's why you have to have other people for perspective. So I'll give an example. Um, I hired a business coach. Her name is Keita Williams, and uh, she's called the success bully. I liked her style because she's not taking any BS. Um, I don't want you to be nice to me. I just want you to be very direct and tell me what I need to do. Right. And so she identified that one of my saboteurs is um, restlessness. So when I'm on a brink, on the brink of a success, like a major success, what I'll start doing is I'll start coming up with different business ideas um, and different ways of doing things kind of outside the box. Like, oh, but maybe we could do it this way. Right. But really what happens is that I'm on the brink of breaking through. And so I come up with some reason to distract myself so I can't break through. Right. And I knew there was something off, but she helped me to see it. And so a lot of times we have to help, we have to have the enlist the help of people that we trust to hold us accountable and let us know when we are getting in our own way. But you're, you're absolutely right. When it comes to success, a lot of times we struggle and it's for different reasons for different people. Um, sometimes it might be a lack of confidence. Uh, they don't see themselves with uh, as being a person that's very worthy. Absolutely. So say, like, do I deserve this? I've worked so hard for it and now I'm close to it. But am I the kind of person that deserves this life? Am I the kind of person that deserves this recognition? Those type of things. And you have to figure out what that is for you. And once you can un- uncover that, now you can work against it. That That's beautifully put. And I want to add to that. A- another thing that I see, and again, I felt that this myself personally, certainly I did when I was in uh, you know uh, high school and whatnot, is the fear of the expectations that come along with achievement. Okay, so once you've achieved and once you've shown people that you can do it, now you're on the hook for it. 
And now people are going to expect that of you. So, I, yep, there you go. You're smiling again. So yeah. talk to me about that. Do you see that, again, because another role that you have is you're also in, in, an instructor, too, at, at Ohio State, right? Do you teach uh, classes? Yeah, well, this this could be another part of the conversation. I just quit both of my university positions on Thursday. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Doing too much, man. Uh, being a stereotypical Caribbean guy, you know, <laughs> having like six jobs, literally six, right? That, that's absurd, you know? So it was causing too much stress. And so I, um, I, I had to let it go and give, uh, give the opportunity to somebody else who could who where that's the appropriate thing for their career. But yeah, I, I was, I still am. I'm finishing out the semester, but um, I have recently retired from academia. <laughs> so did yeah. you see, did you see that with your students? And, and, and did you ever have to talk some of your students through that? Where you're telling, where they're saying, you know, Hey, professor uh, Christian, I, I can't get this done or, or I'm, I, I just can't seem to break through. And, and you see it in that person, they have it in them. How do you talk them through that? I would see that more with the people that I mentor, because nowadays with mo ma the majority of the students, they're coming in just to get the grade and leaving. But I would always let the students know, listen, you can reach out to me personally for mentorship. So some of those students would and some of the, some younger uh, folks would reach out to me in other ways, too. And so with that, what I've seen is that a lot of times people are really overthinking things, um, especially when you're an intellectual. Um, your ability to analyze can be a blessing and a curse. And sometimes we really just think through things too much. And procrastination and that, um, that, that perpetual thought is really just a manifestation of fear. It's another way, way of self-sabotaging. I'm just going to sit here and think and think and think and think and think. And um, it can help you to feel as though you're being productive when you're really not, <laughs> you know, by sitting there and overthinking it. So, yeah, I've, I've seen that. Um, but you, it, you really almost have to, and I, I, I'm going to say this is a therapeutic conversation, but not therapy. Those are two different things. As a, somebody who has a degree in psychology, I respect it enough to not say, hey, I'm, I am a therapist. But it's, it's helping them to un uncover what it is that's holding them back. Because I don't know. I'm not in their head. All I can do is ask great questions. It's just like any other negotiation. And sometimes people are surprised as to what it is that holds them back, like beliefs that were put into their heads by their family and friends. Um, some people are made to feel guilty by the people around them who they care about. You, you hear them say um, you are the, like your GPA, your net worth, whatever it is, is going to be determined by the average of the five people closest to you. And so once you are you're in that little bubble of five and then you start to rise and rise and rise and rise, those people will start to act as your saboteurs. Dean, come on, man. You don't need to stop reading. You're reading way too much, man. Just come back and grab a beer right? Dean, hey, listen, listen, listen. So now you're too good for us, man. Hey, you're too good for us now, right? You know, those little things to try to bring you down so you are still on the same level, right? And so you have to figure out what that is. It's going to be different for everybody too. Crabs in a bucket is what yep. that is. Called the crab yep. barreling. You're trying to climb up and then inevitably somebody reaches up and they pull you right back down or they at least attempt to. Yeah. That, that's real. Yeah. Go on. And a lot of times it's, it's people who are doing trying to do their best to 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 keep you safe or or they, because they love you. So imagine like a uh, a caring parent who's just afraid of you. Oh, you, I have to go across the country for this opportunity. Oh, it's scary over there. Don't do it. You're safer here. Those type of things, right? A lot of times it's not even malicious. A lot of times they don't even realize the impact it's having on on you. You're, they're clipping your wings and they don't recognize it. 
you know so yeah it's, it's tough it's tough especially when it's somebody that you love and you care about who is um who you might need to distance yourself from maybe not necessarily remove but distance yourself from in order for you to soar so it's funny you bring that up because right now i'm reading a book called the 10x rule and the 10x rule all right, is they talk a lot about that about how people might think they're doing you a solid by trying to protect you from aiming too high because they don't want you to be disappointed and you do that to yourself you you set your goals at a very attainable level for fear of disappointment if you don't reach the goals whereas the 10x way to see it would be no you want to set your goals so high that it seems unattainable and if you fall short reaching those goals you still put yourself at such a high level you're going to be pleased with the results in the level that you're at so a, are you familiar with that book? And B, do you subscribe to that method of thinking? Yeah, Grant Cardone, he he changed the way I thought about it with that book. So yeah, I had a, I think I took about 20 pages of notes on that book. It was solid. And it's true. And and it comes with positives and negatives because the the grind of the the author Grant Cardone is is next level. Um almost pathological, right? And so there has to be a level of balance. There has to be a level of balance. But I subs I do subscribe to the belief that we often limit ourselves by what it is that we think we can accomplish. And so I think we have to have those friends who are kind of hype men for us. Like, how good do you think I can be? And sometimes people will see you a lot differently than you see yourself. And I know I, I mentioned this to you, Dean, about my uh, what I would do when I'm trying to accomplish something big. I'll commit to it first um, publicly and then try to figure it out. A lot of the times the the thing that gives me the confidence to uh, to make that commitment and, and aim higher is the fact that I trust the opinions of others that others have about me more so than I trust the opinion that I have about myself sometimes, right? So who do I trust? Who are those mentors that I trust and respect? They think I can accomplish it? I just ran this crazy 10x idea past them and they, they looked at me dead in the eye. They didn't laugh. They didn't smirk. They didn't scoff. They said, yeah, absolutely, Kwame, you can do that. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I can do that. So sometimes I have to borrow confidence from the people around me, but I do subscribe to it because I've been really surprised with some of the things in my life and business, those type of things. I never would have anticipated I am where I am at this stage, uh, which is a good thing. And so it almost makes me wonder what if I would have aimed higher earlier, if I would have gotten gone a little bit further. But I think it's a good exercise for us to keep in mind, because again, I've, I've recognized that sometimes where I set a really, 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 really high goal, and then I don't get it and of course i'm i'm disappointed in the moment then i stop and say this was more than what i thought i was going this, this is more than the conservative goal that i set for myself okay this is good and even if you don't succeed you learn in the process you're learning in the process so it's it's always a win if you have the, the right mentality perfectly put so here's the difficult question for you how do we instill these kinds of concepts and thought processes into our young people because it yeah. seems now as a guy that I, like I, you know, like I coach as that's one of the million things that I do. I, I help out with my son's football team and I'm around young people. And it seems to me, young people, and again, this, maybe this is just me being a gray beard, but it seems like young people are more fragile than they've ever been before. And it seems like they are more protected by their parents than ever before and not in a good way. How do we instill this kind of toughness that it takes to reach these levels in these young folks. Well, they're taught to be fragile. 
in a lot of situations in situations where you could give the benefit of the doubt where it's a 50 50 call either this could have been above board or not you're taught to assume the worst of intentions of, of people right i i think we there's there's something happening in culture where it's kind of making that type of behavior okay and so we have to recognize that we have um influence over the people around us and for for instance with my sons i have uh, a six-year-old and a three-month-old you know three-month-old is you know not ready for these lessons yet but i, I definitely <laughs> am trying with the with the six the six-year-old and i i tell people all the time um my parenting philosophy is very simple i'm parenting toward obsolescence my goal in parenting is to make kai and dominic so strong and self-sufficient that they don't need me anymore that's the goal and so it's focusing on resilience problem solving decision making those type of things right and so i'm recognizing that the ability to engage in critical thought problem solve regulate emotions those type of things those are going to give people a competitive advantage because the the competition is soft that's what I, i tell people all the time like with my with my generation I feel really confident in my ability to succeed because I don't think the competition has ever been weaker. We have so many distractions. Our Every piece of technology that we have is designed to steal our attention. So we have less depth of thought, Ooh. less focus, all of those love things. It. And people are, it's really easy to get complacent. I can go really, co- I can coast, I can get a degree and then I can chill on Instagram and have all all the food and fun that i want what more do i need and so while everybody else is hypnotized the people who are able to focus and self-regulate will will take over the world and so i think for the people who are in our 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 ecosystems like the the children that we have the ability to influence we have to recognize that we have to do a, a marketing campaign because society culture that is its own marketing campaign constantly indoctrinating people with what it is that they, they should or should not be doing. And so even the, the most simplest, the simplest of messages that we're trying to convey, they need to be conveyed over and over and over again, just like any other marketing campaign. Because when you think about it, Coke, Pepsi, Apple, Google, there's never going to be a time where they say, you know what? I think people got it. We're going to stop marketing. That's never going to happen. And it should be the same for us with these really empowering messages that we have. That's amazing. I've never heard you go down that that um down that road before. I think you should do it more often because yeah. that I mean that was I mean you, I almost caught a holy ghost right there, Kwame. I don't know if you saw me, but I was. <laughs> you got you got me comfortable. I'm at home. I'm feeling loose. I'm like, oh no! Now people know how I really feel. <laughs> Man, I almost threw my hands up right. There. <laughs> so one of the things I wanted to talk about on that path was one of the ways you seem to be teaching Kai that you talk to me about is you're teaching him chess, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And the simple thing I keep telling him is stop and think, stop and think because it's, it's so simple, but so overlooked before you make a decision, every, every move is a decision and each decision leads to another decision. And the thing that I like about chess is that you're forced to make a move. You can't just pass. And in life, a lot of times people want to pass. It's like I have a chance to make a decision, but I'm going to I'm going to choose not to make a decision. But what they don't realize is their choice not to make a decision is in fact a decision because just like a decision, it carries consequences too. And so it's it's really important for Kai to understand these life lessons. And then also for me as a as a chess nerd, and I know you know this, but I've played over sixteen thousand games on Chess.com. Like chess is an like a, an addiction. Um, reading multiple books on it, and there are really simple chess principles that can be applied to life. And so if you start employing some of these strategies repeatedly, kind of through the like mental models and just life philosophies, 
it can carry you through those those ambiguous situations on a chessboard in a similar way once you reach those ambiguous situations in life then it can help your decision making because you'll have a set of principles that you can rely on so really can you give us a for instance kwame yeah so here's an example so when you're playing chess here are some things let's start from the opening so first move what are we trying to do so from the first move to the last move, controlling the center is one of the chess principles you need to you need to keep in mind. You need to get your pawns and pieces in place to control the center. Now let's bring that to life. We have to figure out what the center is in our life. So for you, your audience is familiar with your life. So you have a family, you have three kids, that's your center, right? You, you have to control the center, you have to protect that. So no matter what it is that you do, it has to make sure, you have to make sure that it adds to the safety and well-being of your family and won't cause any negative impacts. So you have to always stay focused on what that center is, right? And so it's going to be, there are going to be multiple things that are part of your center, but that's going to be important. Also, your, your skill set too. Right. So no matter what it is that you do, getting better at negotiation, conflict resolution, DEI, that, like that's never going to be the wrong answer. <laughs> right. If you have idle time and you have an opportunity to improve those skills, you're going to be better for it. Right. So controlling the center, that's an example of a chess principle. Um, advance your pieces. So your pawns, bishops, knights, your, your bishops and knights and rooks and everything like that. You want to develop your pieces in a way that they can actually get involved in the game. Because a lot of times the game can develop, but you don't take the time to take those pieces out. And so the, the game is happening, but your best players are sitting on the sideline. So who are the people on your team? Are you investing in their professional development? Are you, do you care about their mental health? Are you putting them in a position to su succeed? Or are you saying, hey, no, I'm the boss. I'm going to do it all my way when you might be able to do that when you're a one one person team or two or three but then at some point it's going to become quickly unsustainable because the game continues to develop but you didn't develop your pieces too right and so there are a lot of these interesting principles that you can put into play that work really really well in chess but also have direct application to real life too and i see that so as the head of an organization i'm picking up what you're putting down whereas putting your best pieces forward you know, we've all been part of organizations at some point of our life, those of us that have been around for a little while, where it's exactly that. You have all this talent and you have all this knowledge and all this know-how and all that, and all those people are like, put me in coach. I want to make a difference, but they're being sidelined Yep. and they're not being used adequately. They're not being used uh, for a number of reasons. Sometimes the people at the head of these organizations, they feel threatened by other people that have skills and ability as opposed to some of the greatest business minds of, of our time where they think the opposite way. They say, hey, wait a minute, I'm a pretty smart person, but I'm also smart enough to know that I don't know everything. And I'm going to surround myself with people that are experts in areas where maybe I'm not as strong. So I, I never even thought of that until just now. I never even thought about that as a chess principle. Yeah. Because I'm not, I mean, I'm not a big chess guy. I know, I know, basically I know how the pieces move, but I would definitely consider myself a novice. Maybe I need to meet, I need to break out the chessboard again. Yeah, <laughs> it's never a bad thing. So, I mean, again, folks, I'm on with Kwame Christian, and we're just talking about all the different aspects of of DEI, of of diversity of thought, and we ended up on a chessboard somehow. <laughs> so, you have basically you just started a new hobby which I consider full contact chess. Yep. You just started jujitsu. I did. I did. Yeah. It is How is that going? 
<laughs> oh, it's beautiful. I love this. And um, I when I was, I was so it was such a great feeling. The first class where all of the guys were there in the, like on the mat and we're just looking at the the leader, the coach, just soaking in everything that he said. And it was the first time in a very long time where I felt profoundly bad at something. And I, I don't mean that as a, a woe is me type of thing, but in an exciting type of thing to be tr a true beginner again. That's exciting because as you go through your life, you your life becomes more refined in terms of what it is that you do. You start to focus in more and more on the things that you're good at, the things that you like doing, and then you start shedding those other things and your life becomes very routine. And so that was happening with me. And so this was the first time in like decades where I felt completely clueless. Like I don't know anything, anything at all. I, I, I remember um, at the end of the first class, they, we, they offered you to do, they, it was open mat. So rolling, you yep. could spar with people. And, you know, me like a little kid, I'm like, ooh, can I spar? And so the coach doesn't want you to get hurt or anything like that. And so they had, he had one of the more experienced guys just lay on his back. And, just, and he said, Kwame, just pass guard. Essentially, passing guard means just get on top of this guy, right? Mm -hmm. Seems pretty easy. He's on his back. Uh, Dean, I felt like I was fighting a, a magical spider. <laughs> I had no idea what was happening to me. I couldn't get close to him. How is he spinning like this? How am I, I'm on my back now? He's on top of me. He was just <laughs> on the floor. I didn't understand anything. And um, it's it's crazy, you know, because there, there are these times where I'm like, there is so much to learn that I don't even know. I, I, I should just stop now. I, that's, that's the vibe that I'm getting. But going back to what I said earlier, this is the direct um, actual thing that I was talking about. So um, for me, I realized that I commit when I, when I want to do something, I have to commit first and figure it out later. And I'm terrified of being embarrassed. I'm terrified of being humiliated, hate losing, very competitive. So after this call, like I am not going to sit up from this, Dean. I'm going to stay on this call. I'm going to stay right here on this computer. And I'm going to register from for my first Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu tournament. I'm I'm four lessons in. And um, I'm going to schedule it six months from now. And I'm going to say, all right, this is the date. And uh, then every day that I don't want to train, every day I don't want to go to the gym, I'm going to have to ask myself, hey, Kwame, do you want to see, do you want your family to see another man strangle you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I can't let it happen. So, um... <laughs> so real. That is, that is so real. Yep. So, so it's a, it's a fun journey, man. It, it's great. Um, I am really, really enjoying it. And as you should be, because one of the things that you get, I've, I've been, I've been in, in, involved in martial arts, particularly Brazilian jiu-jitsu off and on for the better part of, of nine years now. And I can tell you the different phases you're going to go through are, you're going to go through times, like you said, you're going to be like, oh my goodness, I feel like I'm drowning, but there's no water here. Like, how am I drowning without water? Yeah. Yep. You're going to go through that phase. Then you're going to be like, all right, I'm kind of, I'm kind of picking it up a little bit. I'm getting it because you're going to get a little bit more confidence with the very basic moves that these more experienced people are letting you get on them. So they, you know, so they can kind of build your, your confidence a little bit. Then you are going to make a little bit of improvement. You want to know how you're going to know you're making improvement. They're going to start crushing you because now they're not treating you like the new guy anymore. <laughs> they're going to start treating you like everybody else. So I'm sorry to pull back the curtain on you, but this is your future. At some point, you're going to go in there and you're going to think, and be like, oh my God, I got worse. But in all actuality, again, thinking like chess, you've gotten better. That's a compliment. When people stop having to just let you do things on them and they stop kind of coaching you through moves, 
in this less talking and more action in these roles and these sparring sessions, that's a compliment to you. That means that you've achieved a certain level of proficiency. Yeah. All that's right. Good to know. That is, and so that's very good to know. So keep that in mind because uh, the journey of, of jujitsu, and again, I'm a very low level, low level pr pr practitioner. I'm a blue belt. I've been a blue belt for years now because I'm so off and on because of my hectic lifestyle, but I still get in there when I can. And the thing I'm going to tell you is one of the things you're going to get from it is you're going to learn how to look at the same problem different ways. That's one of the greatest gifts mm -hmm. of jujitsu. And I'll tell you how that translates off the mat. So when I was going through, I was going for my masters a couple of years ago and I was having difficulty starting a paper because as we all know, the most difficult part of anything is the introduction, the most difficult part of public speaking, the most difficult part of teaching and writing a paper. How do I start this paper? So after sitting and just staring at my screen for a little while, I said, you know what? There's a jujitsu class coming up. I want to go to jujitsu. I got to clear my head. So I go to jujitsu class. I get myself in an awful position with somebody who's a much higher level than me. And they get me in a position where, like you talked about getting strangled in front of your family, where they were, you know, I got caught in a choke move and I had to tap out and all that. I came home and it's like my fingers were their own, had their own brain. Something in there. When I was caught in that problem and I had to re-examine the way I was looking at the problems that I that I was confronted with the jujitsu, it unblocked my mind and it allowed me to figure out how to start this paper. And I think by the time by the end of it, I mean I, th I think I wrote I think I wrote seven pages before I could even I could even think about it. And it was all based on looking at a problem out of a different view. And that's a gift that you get from jujitsu, which you also clearly get from chess. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Except jujitsu also gives you a little bit more fitness. It know? does. <laughs> yeah, I was I was telling uh, my friends too because I chess, tennis, basketball, like those are the the things that I enjoy doing. I, I, I lift a lot too, but um, with the chess and tennis and basketball, I was like, I'm at a point where I don't care to get any better at those things. Like the the return on investment is really minute, and only I would notice or care. <laughs> and um, I said, here's the thing, you know, I don't walk down the street and and anticipate somebody throwing a racket in my hand and saying, serve it now. <laughs> it's not not realistic, you know. But yeah, I I live a pretty nice life. I've never been in a fight, thank goodness. But just being able to carry that confidence, knowing that if something happens, I, I am somewhat physically competent. And um, if uh, my family needs help, they have confidence in the fact that I'm somewhat physically competent. And to this point, Dean, my my uh, my strategy, my defense strategy was to look big enough to deter aggression. <laughs> That's it. Where people say, oh, I don't want to mess with that guy. I'm like, oh, thank God they don't know I can I can't fight. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I need to have something else. So I, I think this is a bit, a little bit more practical too. I, and, and again, I, 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 first of all, I'm amazed that you've made it this far and you've never once been in a physical confrontation. That is amazing to me. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That, that you made it that far. Um, but I also have to take my hat off to you for having, having the courage. It takes courage to put yourself out there in that way. It is unnatural to walk into a place uh, knowing you're going to get into several different physical confrontations and you're going to lose every single one of them. Yeah. It's, it's difficult to do that. You, know, you really have to check your ego in order to put yourself in that position. And um, just like you, I walked in. The only difference was when I walked in, I was 290 pounds. Um, I was grossly overweight. I'm still overweight, but I was grossly overweight. And then on top of that, I was a former um, college football player. 
you know, I was mm-hmm. I was a small college, but I was a, a, at a high level at a small college. So for me yeah. to go there and lose all these physical confrontations when I played what most people would consider to be one of the most physical sports was crushing to my ego. I mean, I was getting tapped out by people that were computer programmers, delivery drivers, people that spun pizzas for a living, you name it. And these people, I mean, they were tapping me out to the point where it sounded like it sounded like a standing ovation, you know? And <laughs> But the lessons I learned from that, and I like to think that those people helped me in my in my day duties as a police officer, make it a make it home safely, and B, um, you know, up to, up to this point, I've had a pretty good record. You know, seventeen years in this line of work, and I've never seriously hurt anybody. And I've been in a ton of confrontations at work, and I'm mm-hmm. usually the first guy in. So that only comes from training, discipline, and self control, where you can control another person to the point where you're not. Um, where maybe you don't have to, you don't have to seriously hurt them depending on depending on the person. I've been lucky enough that these skills that I've learned have been able to keep me from from having to do that when I've had to get physical with people. Very very grateful for the, for that kind of uh, control and lessons that I've learned from all my jujitsu partners and teachers. Yeah, see that's that's I, I I can definitely respect that, and it makes a lot more sense. Your line of work, you're actually going to use it. Um, if if I'm doing this in a boardroom negotiation, and something has gone very very wrong, <laughs> <laughs> there's no question about it. But like you said earlier, like you never know. Like you're only as strong as your weakest link, and right now your yeah. your weakest link is three months old. Like so, yeah. if you get caught someplace and you are with your family and it's something that you can't necessarily run away from because you're only as fast as 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 you can move with that three-month-old and that six-year-old mm-hmm. so there might be a situation where you might have to um do something you know god forbid but you may have to and that's when these skills become invaluable physically but from the mental standpoint these skills are something you can use every single day in negotiations in uh in stress management in a whole other host of ways Absolutely, because I, I think about the fact you you know you're putting yourself in danger and putting you're literally putting your life in the hands of other people. Because if you don't tap, I mean, they could e- quite easily murder you. Like without like not, it wouldn't be difficult, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, and so when you put yourself during to that kind of duress, like whatever happens during during the rest of the day seems pretty pretty chill. So it's funny you mentioned because the gentleman who my gym's named after his name is Joe Lozon. He's he's. He's, I think he's the longest, ten- yeah, yeah, Joe Logan, yeah, he's the longest tenured UFC fighter. Yes, that's crazy. He is the most humble, unassuming man that you would ever meet. And if you hear his yes. voice, he's the type of guy, like, you know, back when you made prank calls when we were kids, well, we used to make prank calls when I was a kid before caller ID, he would call you and you'd hear his voice, he'd be like, kid, I-, I will smash you if you come over here. And next thing you know, you're in the very worst kind of trouble. The very worst yeah. kind of trouble. This guy is an absolute wizard, and uh, and he calls it murder yoga because that's what <laughs> jujitsu is. It's 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 you know it's it's gentle up until a point, but it has that potential where, like you said, if you wanted to make something final, you could. Um, mm-hmm. And that's and that's the the, the beauty of jujitsu. So absolutely, we're about five minutes out, Kwame. 
tell us what what's important to you. What special projects do you have going on? What's up next for you now that you've lightened your load, so to speak? Yeah, I think it's it's really just consistency. Um, at this stage in the business, we've uh, we've kind of identified the key levers for success, and it's just continuing to to press the advantage. And um, it's exciting. It's exciting to be in this in this position. Um, but it's also a test of my. Uh, my patience too, because I, I like, I like exciting new things and stuff like that. So that's a, a, part, a part of the reason why I'm trying to do some of these, ex, these outside the box risk taking types of things. So I have an outlet for it. That's not in business where I'm like, let's take all this money and put it on black. <laughs> my employers are like, why our lives are in your hands, you know? So I can, I can have that outlet for risk and danger and excitement and um, kind of just have that meat and potatoes approach for business right now outstanding and and how do people follow you and, and what what kind of platforms are you on so people can can follow you and and folks if you're out there if you're in sales if you're in business if you have to do anything where you are talking to other people and you have to get your point across you got to follow Kwame so Kwame how do they do that Thank you. Yeah. So check out our podcast. We have three podcasts, Negotiate Anything, Ask with Confidence, and uh, Negociacion Desde Cero. It's a Spanish language negotiation podcast as well. Um, follow me on LinkedIn. I'm constantly posting uh, new and exciting different tips and pieces of wisdom there. We also have free negotiation guides. And so one is how to have difficult conversations about race too. So if you go to our website, AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash guide, you can get access to all of those free guides. And yeah, check out our website um, and check out all of our content. And if you're interested in training, reach out. All right, folks. You had, so like, again, folks, you don't understand, like what we've had tonight is some people go crazy for this type of access to Kwame like you've had. So we've, we've been lucky enough. We've had him for an hour and Kwame again, thank you so much for, uh, for all that you've done for me, all you've done for supply the Y and your constant, you know, you've kind of been my, uh, my, what would you call it? Like your bully, my bully coach. You kind of been <laughs> my bully coach and give me the tough love when I've needed it to keep me moving in the right direction. And I, uh, I certainly appre appreciate you, uh, you doing that. And I look forward to again, collaborating in the future and, uh, continuing the friendship. It's been great. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Likewise. All right, folks. So that's going to do it tonight. If you like this episode, please like us, follow us on all of your social media platforms. We're on all the major podcast platforms. Again, this is Difficult Conversations. We're going to be here every Sunday night with more great guests like Kwame. So for, for all of you out there that follow us tonight, thank you so much for tuning in. And as always, hashtag supply the why. Have a good night.